Let's pray as we get started. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather around your word, to listen for your voice among us. We invite your spirit to speak with clarity, grant us understanding, grant us wisdom. And God, I pray as we encounter you in your word, as we encounter you in worship and gathered around your table, we pray you would be transforming us. Pray you'd call us, Lord, not just to sit as spectators, Lord, but to learn what it is, to hear your voice and to respond to it, to be changed in the hearing of your word. God, would you make us new in these moments, we pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was thinking about it this week. It's really kind of interesting what people say comes to mind when they think of Christmas. I think there are a lot of things that kind of run through our minds, a lot of memories, a lot of associations we have. Uh, some people would say family. I feel like that's a, that's a big thing. Uh, there's this sort of like nostalgic sense uh, of Christmas for us. We connect Christmas to all these memories we have, these gatherings with these people who are so close to us, family, close friends, right? Even like, like food is, is a thing that comes to mind when you think of, of Christmas because you remember all these meals that have been shared. There's a lot of food that's going to be consumed over the course of the next week, right? Like, that's, that's central to it all. Obviously, we hope at some point when people think of Christmas, Jesus is going to come to mind. That's the idea for us as followers of Jesus. Like, this whole thing is revolving around the incarnation of God, the reality of Jesus born in human flesh, God walking among us, right? But then you ask a kid, you ask a kid, and, and no matter how hard you have worked to, to give them this profound answer, right? This is what they're supposed to say. You've trained them to say it, and no matter what, just about always, you say, what do you think about when you think of Christmas? Presents, gifts. What am I going to get, right? That, that's where they're at. They immediately go to that. They're honest. They're real about it. They know how our culture works. They know what's going to happen. They know what's coming. Gifts, that's what they think of. They can't help but think of all of this. And I think that's reasonable because all of us feel that way. Like all of us look forward to those moments we'll share with people we care about. And what's interesting to me, though, is, is it's not just gifts. It's, it's the way we think about giving at Christmas. At Christmas, what we're normally thinking about is like the exchanging of gifts, right? What normally happens is like, like somebody in the office gets me a gift and... What I'm supposed to do, there is this obligation. I am supposed to, in turn, get them a gift, right? If my wife is going to get me a present, I have to think about what I'm going to get for her, right? There's an exchanging of gifts. Like a lot of families have this thing where they draw names, right? There's the sense that you're going to draw your sister's name so you get her a gift, and your brother's going to draw your name so he's going to get you a gift. But everybody gets a gift and everybody gives a gift. It, it all just works this way. It's a system. It works. And that's what we normally think of. And it's good. We're all going to do it. My family did it yesterday. We'll do it throughout this week. It's going to happen. But the thing about it all is this, this sort of exchanging of gifts idea. It does create within us a mindset about giving so that giving becomes obligatory. It becomes a responsibility. There's an obligation to it. We begin to see giving essentially as a transaction. You give me a gift, I get you a gift. 
right? That's the, the way this always works. I'm getting you a gift because I know that you're going to get me a gift, right? And so sometimes the thought of it is lost. It's good, but it can become for us just a transaction. Something gets lost. Because the reality is there, there are some gifts you don't know are coming. Those gifts are interesting moments, right? That, that moment when somebody offers you something and you didn't know they were going to give you anything. There are some gifts you don't know are coming. And there are some things you don't even realize you need. But somebody knows you well enough to know, no, you need it. Let, I, I want to get this for you. And you know what that's like. Those moments where somebody gives you something and you don't have a chance to respond. You can't reciprocate. See, that's the way this exchanging, this sort of transactional thing works. Somebody gives me a gift and I can always reciprocate. I can always give back. But what about that moment when you can't? What about that moment when you can't reciprocate? When you can't make this a transaction and you just have to receive something you're being offered? It's a humbling kind of moment. There's something about that that's disarming. And I think that's part of the reason we, we always want to be able to reciprocate. It doesn't feel great to feel kind of like the lousy friend who didn't think about them. It's like, you thought about me, but apparently I didn't think about you. Nobody wants to feel like indebted to someone else. And that's not at all what's happening. They gave you a gift. You're not in their debt, but you kind of feel that sometimes. It's a humbling feeling when somebody gives you something sometimes. You've probably experienced it. I remember experiencing it my first Father's Day. April decided to buy me a guitar, okay? You've seen me play this guitar for years. I've had it almost like 10 years at this point, okay? My first Father's Day, she says, I'm going to buy that guitar for you. Now, here's the background. What April knew is that many days in any given week, maybe on the way home, I'd call her and say, hey, I'm going to be a little bit later. I'm just going to run by the guitar shop. And I would just sit there for half an hour, and I'd play guitars that I couldn't afford, and just pretend, right? I would just pretend it was all going to be fine. That's what I would do. Maybe one day, right? I wasn't actually going to pull the trigger. I wasn't ever going to do anything. And April would hear about it. What, what, what were you doing today? Well, I ran by the guitar shop. She just kept hearing about it over and over again. And so she says, I want to buy you that guitar. That's a humbling sort of moment, right? She's doing for me what I can't let myself do, like what I'm not willing to do for myself. I was never going to do that. It was too expensive. I didn't need it. I had a guitar, it's fine. She's doing the thing for me that I can't do for myself in that moment. She's allowing me to, to have something that I would never have allowed myself to have. And here's the thing about Father's Day. You, you can't reciprocate. I can't give her a Mother's Day gift on Father's Day. It's not how it works. Mother's Day comes a month before. And yeah, sure, I got her a gift. But a month has passed, and that gift was nothing like this. Like this was such a, a joy. I, I was overwhelmed with it, just humbled by the fact that she would care enough to let loose that kind of money for me, to care to see me experience that kind of joy, right? It's a humbling moment when somebody does for us what we can't do for ourselves, what we won't let ourselves experience, what we can't make happen for ourselves. And I think that's what's at the heart of Advent. What's at the heart of Advent is something other than a transaction. What we're celebrating in the coming of Christ is no transaction between us and heaven. We've done enough that God is willing to come. God is willing to do something for us if we're willing to do something in return. No, it's not that at all. It's not a transaction. You can't reciprocate. The reality of Advent is all you can do is open your hands and receive the thing God is offering us. Life, his presence among us, 
All you can do is receive. There's a humility to it all. It's meant to characterize this season. And you see that in this passage. You see it happening in Elizabeth. You see it happening in Mary. You see it happening even in John. Like Luke is describing this moment where they're all humbled in the gift God is offering them. And they embrace this humility. That's what I see at the heart of it. Luke emphasizes humility so much in his gospel. And here, that's what he's, he's pushing upon us. The humility of these people in this moment. Learning just simply to receive in joy. That's what this season is ultimately about. Learning to receive and to rejoice. Because there's not much we can really do. You don't get to reciprocate. You can only receive in this season. I notice what happens when, when Mary walks in the room, right? Keep in mind, Mary came from Nazareth. We're talking like 80 miles she came to, to share this news. On foot, maybe on a donkey, we don't know. 80 miles, though, she travels. Not that uncommon, but she's, she's got something important to say if she's coming 80 miles. Keep in mind, she's just found out this incredible news, right? And when she walks in the door, Elizabeth, who can't have been expecting her, Elizabeth doesn't greet her with, hello, or come on in, or welcome, or I missed you, or it's good to see you. She says, blessed are you among women. And blessed is this child you will bear. Like, first off, when you've traveled, like, I don't know, four and a half, five hours in the car, and you, you walk in the front door of somebody's house, that's kind of the greeting you want to get, right? Hello is nice. Welcome. I've missed you. That's nice. But how about blessed are you, right? Like, it's like over the top. She's just overwhelmed in this moment. And I'm sure Mary is thinking, what child that I will bear? How do you know this? Like, like what, what is this about? She hasn't told Elizabeth any of this. That's what she came to do. She was coming to tell her what's about to, to unfold, this incredible thing that God is doing. And yet Elizabeth knows. Mary might be thinking, well, I guess, I guess an angel told her too, because that's the way the story has gone, right? Angel tells Zechariah he's going to have a son named John, right? Angel tells Joseph his wife is going to have a son. Angel tells Mary she's going to bear the son of God, right? But no, it's not an angel, Elizabeth just knows, and Luke explains in this moment when John begins to move around inside of her, the Holy Spirit fills her. There's this clarity for that moment. The door swings open, and Elizabeth realizes it's Mary, and she knows why she's come. Blessed are you, and blessed is this, this child you will bear. It's this amazing moment, but it's it's the next words that I think really kind of get at the heart of what Luke is saying in this passage. But why? Elizabeth says, but why? Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? It's this profound moment for her. Why? We always sing that hymn at Christmas, right? Jesus, Lord at thy birth in silent night. And it's like Elizabeth is saying, no, he's Lord even in the womb, right? There's this incredible moment. Like she's already worshiping him. She's already honoring him as son of God and Messiah. She already understands it. The spirit has given her this, this clarity. Elizabeth is humbled. Why me? Why would you come to me? Why would I be so favored that you would come to me? 
the mother of my Lord. It sounds a little bit like Psalm 8. You remember the, the psalmist words in Psalm 8? What is mankind that you are mindful of us? The psalmist says, who am I that you would be mindful of me, God? And Elizabeth is saying in this moment, who am I that you would come to me with such news? What do I have to do with this thing God is doing in the world? How do I fit into this story? It's like Elizabeth can't understand how she would be asked to do this. She's humbled in this moment. And if you kind of remember, a lot of Elizabeth's life had humbled her. Everything about this story was unexpected for Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth is getting old. She's been married for a long time to this man, Zechariah. He's a priest. And the the news is, not only that she couldn't have children, it's not like they're still trying to have children, she is beyond childbearing age. She is marked in her culture as, as having been barren. Barrenness has kind of defined her, her life. And now she's about to receive the things she has longed for. God is doing for her what she could not do for herself. God is offering her this incredible gift. It's this beautiful sort of moment where God is giving her something. There are sometimes we can't do these things for ourselves, and somebody's offering it to us. And that's what Elizabeth is experiencing. There are all kinds of women, I'm sure Elizabeth felt in this moment, that would have fit this moment better. Younger women, more prominent women, with more prominent husbands. She's been chosen for some reason. What she's longed for, God's giving her. But not only is she going to have a child, which is no small thing. It's no small thing. There are so many people who struggle. Elizabeth's story is the story of so many people. So many women, so many families are walking through this. Elizabeth is, is finding she is about to, the most unlikely of characters in this story, she's about to get to experience it. But not only that, when Mary walks in the door, she realizes not only is she going to get to raise her own child and watch John grow up, she's going to watch the Messiah grow up. This is incredible. It's like she realizes in this moment she is about to have an unobstructed first-person experience of what God is about to do in the world, the coming of the Messiah, and she's going to see it all. She's going to get to live it out. And she's overwhelmed in this moment. The Spirit fills her. The reality of Advent, it humbles Elizabeth that God would come. The coming of Christ, this earth-shattering news, and she's right at the center of it. She gets it. She knows this is not ordinary. There's nothing about this that feels expected or ordinary or deserved. She's humbled. And it's that kind of humility that seems to, to make her able to receive this news rightly. You see the same thing in Mary, though. Mary feels like an unlikely character in the story too, right? Mary is a teenager, and it's common for her to be getting married at this age, but she's just a girl, and she's unmarried. An unmarried teenager is going to bear the Son of God. That's not the most conventional way that God could enter into human existence, right? He doesn't just show up as some powerful ruler he chooses to come as a baby, but not just as a baby, as the baby of an unwed mother. Scandalous. It has been a scandal from the day it happened. 
a hard thing to wrap our minds around that God would choose to come this way. And Mary feels the same thing, like she's a poor candidate for this role. She's, she's just humbled by it. In this moment when, when Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, Mary finds herself caught up in worship, right? And she speaks those, those words, right? The words of the Magnificat. She starts to worship. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She's experiencing it. It's like at one point it made no sense, and in this moment it makes all sense. Of course God would do this. Mary's seeing it. She's beginning to understand more clearly. This thing is bigger than I even realized. When she realizes, Elizabeth already knows. Like, God is doing something, and it is beyond just me. She gets it. Of course God would do this, because God has always been doing this. Exalting the humble. Lifting up the lowly. Elizabeth felt lowly. She felt ignored and forgotten and abandoned. Mary is, is just a helpless girl. She doesn't know what's going to come of her life, and God somehow is lifting up this humble girl. And she begins to recall all the times throughout the history of their people when God has done just this, lifted up the lowly. That's their whole story, really. They were slaves, and he redeemed them. Right? That's the beginning of their story, and it's just one episode after another, the same thing, God lifting up this lowly people. Mary says, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, Pharaoh, right? But he has lifted the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but the rich, he has sent away empty. He sends the rich away empty, but the hungry he fills. The lowly he lifts. This is who God has always been. Israel was an insignificant little nation in the ancient world. There were lots of proud, strong, impressive nations that surrounded them, and yet God did not choose to reveal himself to the world through any of those nations, but through Israel, a people he created for himself. And it was that humility that lowliness that made them perfect for that role because there was no denying it. In the ancient world, the sense was if you have a powerful nation, then they must have a powerful God. And yet here is this, this weak, small little nation that seems to be flourishing. It must be their God. There was no denying it. It has nothing to do with them. They're a weak and unimpressive people, and yet their God is powerful. His power was, was made perfect, Paul might say, in their weakness. That's the reality of it. Israel had always been this. Their humility had always been at the center of this story. And, and Luke is fond of reminding us of that. Luke emphasizes humility in his gospel. I always think of, I guess it's Luke 14. Luke 14 is this moment where Jesus is explaining a, a story. Uh, he kind of gives us a scenario. There was a wedding banquet, he says. You've been invited to the, the wedding banquet. And when you come into that room, you're going to see this long table. Everybody's going to be getting ready to, to sit down and eat together to celebrate this thing that's just happened. And he says, when you come to that table, you can do one of two things. You can sit at one of the higher seats, or you can sit at one of the lower seats. And Jesus says, when you come in, 
Choose the lower seat. Because when the host sees you sitting there, when he walks in and realizes this person who he values, who he, who he loves, is sitting at this low seat, he's going to say, why don't, why don't you come to, to one of these better seats? Why don't you move up? I want you to sit next to me. And he says, there's that other scenario, though, where you come in and you sit down at one of the better seats. And then the host sees you, and his heart's a little broken, but he has to come to you and say, hey, dude, I need you to scoot down. This older, wiser person, this person I've known longer, they're here, and, and they need a spot. And Jesus' conclusion to all of that is, for he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He's setting this thing up. The path to exaltation and joy is humility. But if, if you want to be humbled, try to make much of yourself. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted, and everyone who humbles himself, excuse me, everyone who humbles himself will be exalted, and everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Luke keeps pressing us on that. The path to joy, the path to fulfillment, the path to this this lifting up, this humility. And Mary and Elizabeth are experiencing that. Now, here's the thing. I was thinking about it this week. I come to this passage, and I think humility is at the heart of it. But here's the interesting thing about sermons on humility. I start talking about humility, and generally sermons tend to go in this sort of moralizing direction, right? That's what we all try to do, because that's the easiest thing to do. When you're sitting and listening to a sermon, you're going, what should I do now? Okay, what am I supposed to do? What are the steps I'm supposed to take? Well, if it's a sermon on humility, then I, I guess if humility is so important, I need to be more humble. But have you ever watched somebody try to be more humble? It's a joke. It's silly to watch somebody try to be humble. It just comes across as, as self-deprecation. When we try to be humble, we just demean ourselves and belittle ourselves unnecessarily. That's not what God is asking you to do. That's not humility. He's not asking you to be self-deprecating. He's not asking for false modesty. I'm not trying to tell you today, be humble. What's happening in the story is not a bunch of people who have said, I need to be humble. No, they're being humbled. That's the reality of humility. That's what makes it hard. God has to humble us, and we have to open ourselves up to it. And it means we have to accept that we will always be open-handed before the Father. We will always be the ones who cannot reciprocate. We only get to receive from him. Sure, we'll be transformed. Our lives will be changed. But the only way that happens is if we learn to receive well. You cannot be transformed. You cannot be changed. You cannot become the person, the son, the daughter God is calling you to be unless you learn to receive the gift he's offering you. That, that will change you. The spirit himself will change you and you have to learn to receive from him. That's the reality. So I'm not telling you be more humble. I'm saying in this season, we have to learn to receive, to open our hands before God, to be humbled by him and recognize we will never give back to him anything that was not first his. We will never be able to reciprocate in any real way. We'll just be able to receive and rejoice. That's what we're being invited into, right? And these two kind of unlikely women are making that clear. But what I love about this story is there's one other character. You got Mary, you got Elizabeth. And you got John. Again, unlikely character in the story. But what's so, 
so cool about it all. The, the most memorable moment in the whole thing, you cannot forget this, just the sound of Mary's voice as she comes in the door and John leaps within his mother's womb. It just sets something off within him, right? It's like Jesus, his little cousin, just came in the room and he cannot contain himself. He's never met Jesus, and he just walked in the front door. John, from the beginning, even in utero, has something he wants to tell us about Jesus. I couldn't help but think of those words in, in the Gospel of John. He lays eyes on, on Jesus. He's standing there with all of these crowds that are around him. His disciples are with him. And John looks at Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's like in this moment, little baby John is saying to his mother, Behold, mother, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like he's, even in the womb, John is trying to point people toward Jesus. Do you realize who just walked in the room, mom? Do you realize what's happening? And, and Luke is, is telling us this for a reason. It, it's not just entertainment value. Don't get me wrong. That, that, that is a warm, fuzzy, beautiful moment, John leaping in his mother's womb. I'm so drawn to that. But it's not just entertainment he's telling us for that. Luke is, Luke is clever. And Luke is, is being intentional with this little detail. I think he's, he's referring back to another story. There's only one other time uh, in the, the Hebrew scriptures where you see something like this happening. A child jumping in the womb. This wild movement inside the womb. If you read the Old Testament in, in Greek, the Septuagint, the same word is being used in Genesis 25, right? So Luke tells us that John leapt in his mother's womb. But if you read Genesis 25, there's this story of Rebekah and Isaac. You remember Rebekah and Isaac? Isaac is the son of Abraham. Rebekah becomes pregnant with twins. You probably remember the twins, Jacob and Esau. You can't forget it. And... <laughs> The sense that we're given is that the conflict we know will always exist between Jacob and Esau as brothers, it has somehow already started in the womb. Like, it, it, it's so crazy what's going on in her womb. Rebecca is concerned. She's worried about what's happening. There's this wild movement from within her. They're leaping around within her. It's like they're wrestling. They're fighting already, even in the womb. And she, she's so concerned, she consults God. Like, what is happening in me, she says. And God says to her, there are two nations in your womb. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. That's the whole point of all of this. They're trying to remind us of the reality of Jacob and Esau's life. Esau is going to serve his younger brother. Somehow, Jacob is going to be the one who's lifted up. He's the younger brother. That makes no sense in the ancient world. He's not the firstborn, and yet somehow he's the one who's going to be lifted up. The older will serve the younger. And Luke tells us in this moment, once again, two babies in the womb, and he's saying, John, the older, will serve the younger. He's, he's trying to make it clear. John is embracing that reality from the beginning. He's the older who's going to serve the younger. And he's okay with it. He's embracing that humility. That is his journey from the beginning. And he, just like Mary and Elizabeth, he gets it, he understands, and he embraces it. If you go back to, to John's gospel, John the Baptist is one of the first figures you meet, right? We meet Jesus, the Word of God incarnate. 
He took on flesh and he dwelled among us. But the next figure you meet is this person who is not the light, John tells us, but he, he gives testimony to the light, John the Baptist. And you get to chapter 3, and what you find is this, this really difficult moment for John. All these crowds who've been gathered around him, though the, the crowd has grown, though he has come to prominence, not just in Scripture, like in the ancient world, people knew John's name. He was creating such a stir in Israel. People knew John. And yet, now these people who were closest to him, his disciples. Remember, John the Baptist had disciples too. And these people, are, they're starting to get worried. They're feeling threatened by Jesus. Like Jesus is coming to prominence. All the crowds are starting to see Jesus and go to him. And that means some of John's crowd are going to Jesus. Some of these people are leaving John and going to be baptized by Jesus instead. They're going to the other side of the river where Jesus is teaching, and they're bothered by it. The sense that they, they have, it's a sense of like of betrayal. Like, didn't you start this? Wasn't this yours? Aren't you bothered by this? Here he is, he's just stealing these people from you, playing the same thing you have been. This has been your routine, and now he's, he's just taking it. He's a cheap imitation, John. Don't you realize it? And John says something profound. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The bride belongs to the groom, he says. The crowds have always belonged to Jesus, he's saying. The church has always belonged to Jesus. And it's easy for us to forget that, especially for people in leadership. There's this sense in which it, it becomes ours. We have this ownership over the thing, and sometimes that gets lost on us. It doesn't happen for John. John never loses sight of it. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. And he goes on. The friend who attends the bridegroom, right? The best man. You know this figure. The best man waits for the bridegroom. And he's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. See, that's the whole role of the best man, right? You're the sidekick. You're playing in the background and you're doing everything that's necessary. He says when he hears the voice of the bridegroom, though, it just stirs joy in him. And then he says this word. That joy is mine and it is now complete. That joy is mine. I'm okay with being the best man, right? The phrase in our culture is, is always a bridesmaid, never a bride. And John says, I'm good with it. I'm good with being the best man. I am happy to wait on my Lord. I'm okay with this. This was always the point. This is my joy, and my joy is now complete. John's humbled by the task he's been given. He doesn't need the limelight. He doesn't need to be seen or known or glorified. He gets it. He understands the role he has to play in all of this. He doesn't need to be celebrated. He finds joy in the humble path. John knows what Luke is saying is true. What Jesus says as he stands there in that Pharisee's house that day. He knows he can only be lifted up if he's humble. He knows the role he has to play in all of this. Luke is telling us that from the beginning. John's joy was always in humility. Even in the womb. Even before he was born, he knew his purpose. He recognized it in some mysterious way. John knew from the beginning, those words he would speak, he must become greater and I must become less. From the beginning, it was happening. Jesus walks in the room and he's telling Elizabeth, 
He must become greater and I must become less. The older must serve the younger. That was his role. And I think when we, when we gather around over the course of the next week or two with family, with friends, like when, we're, when we're doing this thing, this routine that we're so familiar with, that we all love, when we're exchanging the gifts, when we're enjoying these gatherings together, I think we, we will always want it to feel equitable, right? We, we have these arrangements. This is how much money we're spending. These are the kinds of gifts we're getting. You're going to get me something. I'm going to get you something. We all understand. It's going to be fair and equitable. Everybody stays on the same level, and yet there's nothing equitable about Advent. God has chosen to come to a humble and lowly and broken people. Not because of, of anything inherently good in them. They can't reciprocate. They can only receive. It's humbling. Just as Elizabeth and Mary and John were experiencing, we are made to experience the same thing. To, in humility, open our hands to receive the gift that's being offered to us. And to be okay with it. Because even Jesus embraces that humility. That's what Paul is getting at in Philippians 2. Even though he was God in, in human flesh, he did not use it to his advantage, he says. Rather, he took on the very nature of a servant, making himself nothing. He humbled himself, Paul says, even to the point of death. This is who Jesus was. He reveals humility to us in the truest kind of way. Jesus reveals to us something in the cross. Jesus, the older brother. Our brother Jesus humbled to the point of death. And the cross, you're seeing it all over again. The same thing we saw with Jacob and Esau, the same thing we saw with John, we're seeing the older choose to serve the younger. We're seeing the one who was exalted, letting himself be humbled, that we might be lifted up. There's something beautiful about that. There's something good about that. A God who has chosen to humble himself, that we might be lifted up. Because in the cross, not only is Jesus lifted up, the beautiful thing is what we're celebrating in the gospel is that we have been lifted with him. Humble and lowly and broken, feeling abandoned and betrayed and forgotten, feeling of no value and no worth, and yet he's choosing to lift us up. Yet he's offering to us a gift that we cannot reciprocate. That's the reality of it. And as the band comes this morning and, and we move toward the table, there's this reminder that this table is not like the table that Jesus is describing in Luke 14. There is no seat at this table higher than any other. Because all of us have no business at this table. We're all guests that don't really belong. None of us actually has a seat at this table, and yet every one of us finds we've been invited to it. Every one of us finds ourselves lifted from that lowest seat to the higher seats of this table. All of us are on the same level. We don't deserve to sit at this table, and yet Jesus has welcomed us here. That's the reality of it. Everybody's on the same level at this table. All of us have been invited, undeserving guests. And that means at this table... You can't reciprocate. You can only receive and rejoice. There's nothing we have to offer at this table. We only receive and rejoice. And I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians it's chapter 11. 
teaching on communion. He says, when we do this, every time we do this, every time we come to this table, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're remembering what he did, but we're looking towards something. We're not just looking backwards as we come to communion. We're looking forwards. We're remembering not only did God come in Bethlehem, God is going to come again in New Jerusalem. God is coming. And just as John and Elizabeth and Mary were receiving that news, we are receiving that news at the table. God is coming. We live between two advents. And there's a deep and abiding hope for us. Humble and lowly and broken, and yet God is inviting us. Come to the table. He's inviting us in our humility to be lifted up by this thing he's done. So come now and receive. Let's pray. God, would you, would you lift our hearts in these moments? Would you make us okay with the fact that, 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 that we can't really reciprocate? We don't have much to offer. And all you're asking of us is that, that we would open our hands to receive your goodness. This is always your work. And we are unlikely participants in this story, and yet you've invited us here. Yet you've included us in this thing that you're doing in the world God, I pray we learn to receive and to rejoice. Keep us from thinking we need to work harder at being more humble. Help us to open our hands and to be transformed by your spirit that you've offered to us. You do the work, God, and we just receive it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.